Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Luke chapter 19. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you that this past week we had vacation Bible school and we had a bunch of kids running around here and got to share the gospel. And tomorrow, a group of us leave, leaves with our third, fourth, and fifth graders to YMCA um, Winter Park up there at the uh, Winter Park um, Snow Mountain Ranch. And so we're going to have a great time this next week. It's supposed to be 101 here. It's going to be nice up in the mountains. So sorry, guys. We're taking off on you. No. Pray for fruit from Vacation Bible School and also pray for our children as we go to camp this week. Luke chapter 19. Over the past few hundred years, there have been a lot of weird religious cults that have predicted the end of the world or the return of Christ. Some of these have been very bizarre. Some of, this, some of these have borderline been actually kind of atrocious in what they have done. It goes all the way back to the 1800s in our nation. In upstate New York, in the 1840s, there was a Baptist preacher named William Miller. He gained a big following. His followers were called the Millerites. And he predicted that the end of the world would happen on October 22, 1844. And so a lot of people began to sell their possessions. They began to go crazy, wondering. They would meet out in these fields, and they, and they waited for the return of Christ. And obviously, when Jesus didn't come back in 1844... They got disappointed. They got frustrated. As a matter of fact, American history calls this the great disappointment. A lot of people got disillusioned. A lot of people left the faith. They were frustrated with Miller and his prophecies when Jesus didn't return. I don't know if you remember the Heaven's Gate cult back in the late 90s. Anybody remember Heaven's Gate? In 1997, there was this cult that made news. It was led by a man named Marshall Applewhite. And this is what they believed. They believed that they were going to be redeemed from this earth and go into a portal called Heaven's Gate. And when the Halbop comet came across the sky, there would be a UFO behind it that would open up a portal to Heaven's Gate and they would all be raptured up into space. And what happened was, on March 26, 1997, the San Diego Sheriff's Department deputies went into this house and they found the largest mass suicide in U.S. history. 39 people, all dressed the same way, both men and women, took their lives in this mass suicide, awaiting, quote-unquote, the end of the world. Ever since Jesus Christ has ascended back into heaven, there have been many who have wrongly predicted the return of Christ. Some have engaged in weird types of behavior, attracted large followings, become leaders with bizarre beliefs, led people to sell their possessions. You can think of Jim Jones back then leading people to drink the Kool-Aid, mass suicides. There's been a lot of crazy, weird activity related to predicting the end. Now, these are extreme examples, extreme, of what some people will do to get ready 
for the second coming to get ready for the return of Christ. Very extreme examples. But nevertheless, it brings up a very good question for us to think about today. How do you prepare for the second coming? How do you prepare for Jesus' return? How do you prepare? Now, none of us here, hopefully, would do something as crazy as join a cult or drink the Kool-Aid or do some weird things like that, sell all our possessions. But the Bible does tell us that we wait Christ's return. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me since COVID and have asked that question, Pastor Sean, do you think the end is near? And here's what I tell them. It's one day closer today than it was yesterday. I don't know when the end's coming. But it seems like everybody's looking at the the world that we live in. They're looking at culture. They're looking at the, the world events. They're looking at the timeline. And everybody seems to be on edge thinking, are we closer? Is the end coming? What should we be doing? Well, as we come to this section in Luke's gospel, it's very interesting because Jesus, over the past few chapters, Past few weeks, we've been looking at Matthew, I mean, at Luke chapter 18 and 19. And it goes all the way back to chapter 18. You see the Pharisee who prayed to himself and the humble tax collector who beat his chest and asked for God's mercy. And then Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to receive it as a little child. You have to have childlike faith. And then we saw the rich young ruler who walked away from Jesus sad because he had many possessions. And then we saw the blind beggar. The blind beggar Bartimaeus cry out for mercy, and Jesus gave him mercy. And then last week we saw the wee little man, Zacchaeus, who repented and believed in Jesus as a Savior. And after this encounter with Zacchaeus, where Jesus mentions there in verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost... Jesus kind of dramatically shifts gears and tells a parable about being prepared for his second coming. Now, why would Jesus dramatically shift gears? What's going on here? Why why is he just kind of shift gears and tell this parable? Well, context is everything. We need to understand the context as to why Jesus begins to tell this parable. Okay, they're in Jericho. But if you read the text, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. It's a 17-mile trek, and everybody knows the significance of Jerusalem, the key city in biblical prophecy, the key city in the Bible. They're going to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, after this parable, next week we'll look at this, you have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. So there's kind of this buildup that Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem, and so his followers were expecting something big to happen. Something big's going to happen in Jerusalem. In their mind, the Messiah is going to come in on a white horse. He's going to be a powerful military leader. He's going to go right into the Roman Empire. He's going to oust the emperor. He's going to set up the throne of David in Jerusalem. And he's going to rule and he's going to reign with military power and might like the good old days. That's what they were expecting. If you remember back when Jesus fed the 5,000, remember what happened after, they, after Jesus fed the 5,000? They actually wanted to make him king right then and there. They were so excited. In John 6, 14-15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
So this had happened before in Jesus' ministry where they wanted to take him by force to make him become king. So everyone around him had kind of a warped view of the Messiah, a warped view of the kingdom. They wanted this immediate ushering in of the kingdom. They wanted Jesus to immediately be their king, and they wanted him to be more of a military, political leader. And so as they approach Jerusalem, his followers have this same idea. And so let's read, that's kind of the setup to the parable here. The parable, the ESV calls it the parable of the ten minas. Some of your old translations may call it the parable of the pounds. So let's pick up in verse 11 and read together the words of Jesus. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because, that's important, because here's why he tells a parable, he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. I will admit to you, I do not like parables. When I teach my New Testament class at Colorado Christian University, I tell my students, parables are the hardest things to interpret. So I, I spend a lot of time this week, what does this mean? Okay, you can lose the forest for the trees, and get, there's a lot of moving parts in this parable. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to make it a little bit easy, okay? Because parables are difficult to interpret. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to explore three truths. I'm not going to get to everything in this parable, but I think there's three truths that we can take home today that teach us what this main parable, the main point of this parable. And the first one's obvious, okay? But I want us just to remember. Here's, here's number one. We do not know exactly when Jesus will return. A lot of people think they do, but we do not know exactly when Jesus will return. Now, why does Jesus even tell this parable? Well, he tells this parable in verse 11. We know why. There are two reasons, and, and, and we find the reasons why in verse 11. 
he proceeded to tell a parable because, okay, when you see the word because there, it tells us why. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and I had mentioned that earlier, they're near Jerusalem. His followers are thinking something big is going to happen in Jerusalem. Something's going to happen in Jerusalem. Is Jesus going to usher in the kingdom in Jerusalem? Is he going to kick out the Roman rulers? What's Jesus going to do when we get to Jerusalem? But the second thing, (coughs) excuse me, the second reason is because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's really why Jesus tells the parable. They thought in their warped view of things that Jesus would immediately set up his kingdom in Jerusalem right then and there before the resurrection before the cross before anything it would happen right then and there the immediate establishment of the political kingdom of the Messiah would happen right then and there and it's interesting that his followers have a hard time understanding the establishment of the kingdom because if you remember right after Jesus rose from the dead And right before he ascends back up to heaven in the clouds, his disciples ask him the same question. In Acts chapter 1, 6 and 7, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It must be now. You've risen from the dead. It must be now. And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. And Jesus goes back up to heaven. For some reason, his followers had a hard time understanding that the kingdom is not something immediate, but something in the future that we would have to wait for. We'd have to wait for the establishment of the kingdom. When Jesus comes back, not immediately on their timetable. And Peter, one of the apostles, he addresses the attitude that many people have towards us as Christians that are waiting for the second coming. Okay, Peter knew that there would be scoffing in the last days. So in 2 Peter chapter. 3, verses 3 and 4. Peter says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. When is Jesus going to come back? I've been waiting a long time. So in Luke, his followers are confused, thinking it's immediate. After his resurrection his followers are thinking it's immediate and peter says that even nowadays and in peter's day people are going to be wondering why are you waiting so long for the coming of christ when's it going to happen so jesus addresses these misconceptions about the kingdom by telling a parable excuse me i got something in my throat this morning so jesus tells a parable of a nobleman a nobleman who goes off to a far country to receive a kingdom. Now, in parables, you kind of have to figure out the parallel, the symbolism of what's going on. Most parables are talking about either God the Father or Jesus. And so this, this nobleman that goes off to a far country is none other than Jesus. It's talking about Jesus himself. Now, how will Jesus go off to a far country and receive a kingdom? Okay, what, what's happening here? Jesus, in a nutshell, is basically saying this. I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die for the sins of my people. I'm going to rise again and then I'm going to go back to a far country. Where's the far country that Jesus came from? Heaven. 
He's going to ascend back to heaven, and then he's going to receive his kingdom. He's going to receive his kingdom in heaven. He's going to be at the right hand of the Father, and then one day he's going to what? Return. And so Jesus is talking about his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and eventual return back to planet Earth. And so we know that Jesus will return. We just don't know when he will return. But when that day happens, it will be visible, it will be literal, it will be physical. Acts 1.11, that same passage of Scripture where his disciples are saying, Is the time now? No, Jesus says, I'm going back up to heaven. And then Acts 1.11, the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will come from the clouds on that final day. Revelation 1.7 Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He's coming in the clouds. And then the very last verses of Revelation, the very last verses of the Bible, Revelation 22, 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm coming soon. Okay, we can get impatient waiting for Jesus to come soon. We ask Jesus, how soon is soon, Jesus? We've been waiting a long time. We can get impatient. As a matter of fact, the early church thought they had missed it. Do you realize one of the reasons Paul writes First and Second Thessalonians is because that church thought they'd missed the second coming. And Paul has to write them and says, no, you didn't miss it. He says in Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to, together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. It hasn't come yet. Don't, don't, don't stress out, Thessalonians, you haven't missed it. What we are waiting for is the blessed hope, as Paul says. Titus 2.13, we are waiting for our blessed hope. And what is the blessed hope that we're waiting for? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as we wait, as we wait for the coming of Christ, there are two negative ways we can wait. Negative ways. Sinful ways. Well, the first is we can be fearful. Oh my goodness, the world is winning. The devil is winning. Things are going bad. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. God must not be on his throne. I'm scared. I see a lot of Christians that act that way. They're fearful of the way things are going right now, and they've forgotten that Jesus is still on his throne, and he is coming back. There's no reason to be fearful as we await the second coming of Christ. Yes, it may look like the world is winning and the devil's winning and, and all these things are going crazy, and we may not understand it all, but we have to understand it's part of God's sovereign plan, and Jesus will come back at the appointed time. So we should never be fearful as we're waiting for the return of Christ. That's one negative way to respond. The second, we can be idle. We can be lazy. It's going to be a long time away from now. We, there's no urgency. There's no um, diligence. You can kind of coast and, and not watch and be ready. And you can basically 
Just kind of put his return out of your minds and live in laziness and in spiritual apathy. Both of these are sinful, fearful and idle. Those are not the way Christians should respond as we wait for the second coming. So what is the positive or the appropriate way to wait? This leads us to our second point of the parable, the main point of the parable. Second, here's the main point of the parable. We can be faithful servants until Jesus comes back. We can be faithful servants until Jesus comes back. Now back to the parable. What is, Jesus, what is Jesus or the nobleman? What does the nobleman give the ten servants? He gives them each the same amount of money. Now, this is different than the parable of the talents. Some people argue, is this the same as the parable of the talents? This is a little bit different because each person gets the same amount. They get ten minas. And you ask, what's a mina? It's about three months' wages. So it's not a lot of money. It's about three months' pay. The amount's not what's important. What's important is what the nobleman tells the servants to do with the money that he gives them. What does he say? Verse 12, he said, Therefore a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Verse 13, calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus. So he gave them all the same amount. And here's what he said to them. Engage in business until I come. Get busy with what I've given you until I come. Now, does the nobleman say when he's coming back? He just says, be busy with what I've given you until I come. Engage in business. So it's not necessary to go out and make a huge profit. It's just, I've given you a gift. I've given you a, a, a treasure. I've given you money. Now get busy investing it. Get busy using it. Get busy working until I come back. And so here's the question. How will you invest? in what Jesus has given you until he comes back. What's part of the Lord's Prayer? What do we pray as part of the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come. We pray for his kingdom to come, don't we? But the other thing is, okay, as we're waiting for God's kingdom to come, are we diligently putting to work the gifts that he's given us to further the work of the kingdom? So here's the thing. What are you doing with what God has given you for the glory of God and for the spread of the gospel? That's the real question. What are you doing with what God is giving you until he returns for the glory of God and the spread of the gospel? Are you being faithful with three things? All of you have these three things, okay? You all have time. You all have some type of talent or gift. And you all have treasure, money. Every single one of us has time, talent, treasure. The question is, how are you using those for the glory of God? How are you using the gifts that God has given you? Are you being faithful? Think about the gifts that God has given you. John 3.27, this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, A person cannot receive one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Everything you have has been given to you as a gift from your heavenly Father. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And then this was read at the opening of our worship service, James 1, 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation of shadow due to change. God is the giver of gifts. Now, before you use 
the gifts that God has given you, we must understand as believers in Jesus what is the greatest gift. The greatest gift is the gospel of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. I love the way Galatians starts. Because Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 5 give you the gospel in a nutshell. It succinctly tells us what Jesus came to do. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What's the good news? The good news is it was God's plan to receive glory in the sending of Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to deliver us from this evil age. That's the good news. That's the greatest gift that we could ever receive is the, 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 the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as you wait for Jesus to return, how are you being faithful with the gospel, with the message, with the gifts, with the things that God has given you. Now, the nobleman's been gone for a long time. We don't know how long he's gone. And he comes back. He goes off to a far country to receive a kingdom, and he comes back. And he comes back not as a nobleman, but what does he come back as? King. And look at what it says there in verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom... He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So he calls the servants back and says, okay, I've been gone a long time. How did you do with the gifts I've given you? How did you do with the ten minus? So the first guy comes in, and what does he say? <clears throat> he says, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he says to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over ten cities. Notice the words there. You've been a good and faithful servant. Good and faithful. You've been faithful with what I've given you. You've gone and you've put it to use. You've put it to work. It's, it's gained an interest. It's been fruitful. You've been a good and faithful servant with the gift I've given you. Okay, the second guy comes in. Now, he doesn't make as much. He says... I've made five, your minas made five minas, and then he says, and you are to be over five cities. Again, to the second one, again, it's not so much the profit that was made, the point was they were faithful. They were faithful with the gift that God had given them. But the third servant comes in, and he's not faithful. What does he do? Verse 20, another came in saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. I didn't do anything with your money. I didn't even take it to a bank where it could have earned interest. I mean, I, I kind of just hid it away in a handkerchief. Didn't do anything with it. Why? Because you're a hard taskmaster. You're, you're a mean dude. I, I, don't, I don't like you. I thought you'd come back and yell at me. So he has a warped view of his master. Sadly, a lot of people have this warped view of God as well. God's this meanie, cosmic killjoy up in the sky that's throwing lightning bolts at people and he's like an old man that keeps yelling at the kids to get off the lawn a lot of people have that view of god that he's just this harsh taskmaster now what's the point of the parable you can lose the forest for the trees and all the different things here what's the main point will you be faithful with the time 
the talents, and the treasures that God has gifted you with for His glory and for the spread of the gospel. Let me be very clear. As the Lord, Jesus has given you time. As the Lord, Jesus has given you talents or gifts or abilities. As the Lord, Jesus has given you treasure. Now, it may be different the way the Lord has given them, but everybody's been given those. And the question becomes, until he comes back, are you going to be faithful with what he has given you? Now, let's ask the practical question. What what does this look like practically in your life? Okay, Pastor Sean, I'm supposed to be a faithful servant until Christ comes back. What does this look like practically? Well, let's let's look at different areas of your life. Let's first start in your personal life. In your personal life, do you value spending daily time with the Lord in prayer and in Scripture saturation so that you can be a good and faithful servant just personally spending time with the Lord growing in Christ? Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you spending time with Christ? Are you spending time in His Word, as Colossians 3.17 says? Colossians 3.16-17, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. I love that. Let this Word, this Scripture, dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then 2 Peter 3.18. But grow. Grow in what, Peter? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Are you being a good and faithful servant in your personal life? Are you growing? Now, maybe you say, I don't, know, I don't know where to start. Well, let me give you one very practical thing you can take on your way out of this place this morning. On the resource table, we have Table Talk magazine. We have a monthly, they, they come every month. It's got a daily Bible reading plan. It's got devotionals. If you don't know where to start, take one of the Table Talks off the, mag, off the, off the, off the, the, the table back there and use that this week to grow. Okay, so that's your personal life. Okay, let's ask the second question. In your family life. Are you discipling your children? Are you catechizing your children or your grandchildren? Are you leading in family worship? Here's our church's mission statement. And maybe you're new to Emmanuel and you haven't heard this before. So we exist for three things. To display God's glory, to declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. Okay, so glory, gospel, great commission. Let me ask you, does that reflect your home? Does your family glorify God? It's all about the gospel. And are you making disciples of your family, of your children? Deuteronomy 6, 4-7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. To who? To your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall teach your children diligently. 
the things of the Lord. Paul has a word to fathers in Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, you may say, well, I don't know how to lead my family. I'm glad you asked, Pastor Sean. We've got resources out there. We've got the book, Family Worship. It takes you through how you can do family worship in your family. We also have the Baptist Catechism out there in Spiral Bound. I know earlier in the year we, we had the books. We're out of those, so we've got some, we've got some resources out there you can take to, to begin to train your children. And then right now, media and all the other things that we have as a church, there's, there's multiple ways you can be doing that. Okay, let's talk about your church life. Do you see this church as a family where you can be a good and faithful servant investing in other people? I could preach a month of Sundays on these verses, but I'm just going to go through them quickly. They're called the one another's, the gospel one another's. It's because they talk about one another. Okay, love one another. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love one another. Are you doing that? Romans fifteen seven. therefore welcome, I think other translations say accept one another as Christ has welcomed or accepted you for the glory of God. Are we accepting one another? Are we welcoming one another? Are we loving and encouraging one another? Okay, Galatians 6, 1 through 3, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear the burdens of one another. Love one another. Welcome one another. How about Ephesians 4.32? Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving. Loving. Encouraging. How about Hebrews 10.24-25? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encouraging one another, meeting together with one another. James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. What I'm saying is the Bible's full of these one another's. And the way you're a faithful, a good and faithful servant is in your church life. Are you practicing these one another's? Okay, let's move it out to your work life. Are you being a positive witness? Are you being a good and faithful servant, a positive witness in your work life? You know, the Bible has a lot to say about your, your job, your work. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do in your occupation, remember, you're serving the Lord first. Now, you're working at a job. You're working for an employee, or you may be an employer, but ultimately, you're working for the Lord. And then Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians three eleven through 12 For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Sometimes you're being a good and faithful servant by just showing up on time, doing your job, not complaining, having joy, and just being a good employee. It's just that easy. There's nothing super spiritual about it. It's just being a good employee. Okay, let's talk about your public life. Like a citizen. Are you making an impact in culture? 
Are you impacting your neighborhood? How do you vote? How do you impact decisions that are being made like school board or local politics? How are you doing that? 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Are you praying for your leaders? Are you praying for leaders locally, state, nationally, that we as Christians may lead quiet lives? We, we, we could live lives that glorify God. So the bottom line is this. Here's the point of the parable. God has given you time, talents, and treasures. Are you investing those wisely? Are you being faithful with what God has given you for His glory and for the gospel? In your personal life, in your church life, in your family life, in your work life, in your citizen life, in your life, every aspect of your life, are you being a good and faithful servant? Now, there's a third part of this parable that's a little unsettling. And there's two verses that just kind of pop out at you. This is all about the second coming. The second coming, here's the third thing. The second coming will bring final judgment on those who do not submit to Jesus as Lord. Now you see something very interesting in verse 14. There's another group of people. Okay, so far you have the nobleman representing Jesus. You have the servants representing his people. But then you have this third group, the citizens. And notice how they respond. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. We don't want Jesus as king. We hate Jesus. We don't want him to come back as king. We don't want him to return and rule over us. We don't want his leadership. We do not want to be under the sovereign control of Christ. We want to rule our own lives. And we live in a culture where people flagrantly shake their fist at Jesus and the Bible and say, we hate you, we don't want you. We don't want you as Lord. We don't want you in our lives. We hate you. We don't want anything to do with you, Jesus. But verse 27 is pretty graphic. And you have to deal with what happens at the end of the parable. Verse 27. How does the parable end? But for those enemies of mine, back to verse 14, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's kind of shocking, Jesus. Bring the enemies before me and slaughter them. Now, obviously, this is a parable. But what's it saying? It's saying this. Jesus is king of the kingdom. And when he comes back, there will be judgment for those that did not bow to his lordship. He has the right to judge his enemies. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. Jesus has come to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with mighty angels 
inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his mind. The Bible is very clear about what happens at the second coming. When Jesus comes back, those who are not believers in him will suffer judgment. He will usher in his kingdom, ultimate kingdom. Revelation 11, 15 through 18. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah chorus there. Handel's Messiah. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. But the nations raged because your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and destroying the destroyers of the earth. When Jesus comes back, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and our King. And he shall reign forever. So this parable should instill two responses today. The first response is for those that have not submitted to Jesus as king, when he comes back, there should be fear. you You should be instilled with fear if you've not bowed the knee to King Jesus because when he comes back, it's going to be too late. There's an element of fear in this parable that when the king comes back and you're not ready and you're an enemy, it will be too late. But the second response, and I think this is where most of us are this morning, is that of gratitude. Because here's the point. Jesus has saved you and equipped you to serve him with good works for his glory. I want you to think about this. You may may be a little unsettled this morning. Well, Pastor Sean, I don't know if I've got what it takes to be a good and faithful servant. I don't know if I've got what it takes to be a good and faithful servant. And I say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, amen, you don't have what it takes. But I know one who does. Jesus Christ. Listen to Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship. Boys and girls, you should know this because this was our verse this past week. For VBS. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared beforehand these works for you to walk in to be a good and faithful servant. So God is preparing you, God is equipping you, God has given you the power. And then we read this earlier. Glenn, our elder, 2 Peter 1 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So as you await the second coming of Jesus Christ, remember that his power has granted to you everything you need to be a good and faithful servant with your time, with your talents, with your treasures. You have everything you need. You have the risen Savior. You have the Holy Spirit. You have everything you need. So I can say with you with all confidence, because of the power of the Spirit living in you and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, go out this week 
and live a life as a good and faithful servant with your time, your talent, and your treasures, not for your glory, but for the glory of God, not for the spread of your agenda, but for the spread of the gospel. And God has given us everything we need. And I want to be able to go to heaven on that final day and hear the Lord say those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And let's just take a few moments to evaluate your life and just spend some time, maybe think about those areas of your life where maybe you're not being a good and faithful servant and just ask the Lord to give you strength. But just take this moment to spend time before the Lord and ask Him to help you grow to be the person He's called you to be. Heaven, we come before you today and we're so thankful that you are a a good and faithful God. Before we can think about being good and faithful servants, we have to realize you're a good and faithful God. And Jesus, you did go to the cross on our behalf. You rose again. And now you're in the far country of heaven on our, on our behalf as our intercessor. And you're going to come back. We don't know when, Jesus, you're coming back, but we know that you are coming back. And as we await your return, we want to be faithful servants. We want to be faithful with our time. Be faithful with our talents and gifts and abilities you've given us, and we want to be faithful with our treasures, with our money, our finances. In our personal lives, in our family life, in our church life, in our work life, as a citizen, Lord, all the spheres that we live in, in this world, help us to be good and faithful servants, and help us to remember, above all, that Jesus, you've given us power upon power. Your divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So help us to remember that this week as we live for you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.